0: When I woke up, a voice came over the a speaker in the, in the MRI tube. And I'm assuming it was either the technician or doctor or somebody. And they said, before you know, we ask you any questions or, or tell you anything, like, just know that you're, you're lucky to be alive. You, you almost weren't. If those paramedics weren't there, you would not be here. So know that first. I was like, okay, All right. I'm just lucky to be alive right now. So, okay, now give it to me. And they asked me if I could move my toes or feel anything. And of course, you know, the answer is no, 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 no. And then they started going down the list of injuries. With me.
1: That was Jeremy McGee, and this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Jess, your host, and along with BJ, my co-host, we are Yogi Triathlete Holistic Performance. Triathlon and run training, mindfulness and meditation, yoga, and plant-based nutrition. Basically, the full spectrum needed to seriously kick butt in life and sport. Today, we are talking about some serious life butt kicking. You know, the very reasonable concept of making the seemingly impossible possible. You know those people. And if you're listening to the show, there's a good chance you're one of them. That person who sees something unattainable and goes after it like it's their job until they bring it into their reality. No matter what others say, no matter what it looks like on paper, and no matter the doubts that show up in their mind, somehow they persevere and serve as the example for all of us to witness what so many of us fall short on, turning inspiration into action. For seven years, Bloody Mountain in the Mammoth Lakes area of the Eastern Sierras called to Jeremy. Specifically, the narrow gully and steep gradient of Bloody Coulard. A coveted descent for backcountry skiers and snowboarders with a pitch of up to 50 degrees and no way up but by foot, Jeremy's friends would go up and come back down and show him pictures and he felt left behind. He felt stuck a state of mind that fueled his fire to find a way to leave his wheelchair behind and not only climb, but ski down the infamous bloody couloir. Jeremy was a natural born adventurer. Growing up in Southern California, he and his brother were always roaming the canyons and surfing the waves. All of that continued into his college and adult years as a lifeguard, first responder and skier spending his days at the coast or on the slopes. He took his sense of adventure to the road when he started getting into motorcycles, riding with friends, any excuse to get on the bike. After all the long rides and no doubt some high speeds in there, Jeremy found himself one day falling into that statistic that we've all heard. Most accidents happen within two miles of the home. While out for an errand with a friend, he collided with a vehicle as he was accelerating, and in those moments, his life shifted forever. A runner at heart. Jeremy was left without the use of his legs and a whole new mountain in life to climb, but it was the bloody couloir that was the most symbolic of his journey and the expedition that we chat about today. Jeremy is an inspirational speaker with a TED Talk that puts you right there with him on the mountain. He is an adaptive athlete and an adventurer with so much more to explore. His movie Drop In documents his preparation and eventual conquering of the couloir. His newest project, The Unpavement Tour, will make trail riding more accessible than ever before for adaptive riders, and his catalog of bicycles through his Sport On USA initiative are downright sick. Jeremy has been featured in Outside Magazine, Positive Impact, Body and Soul in Backcountry for his athletic pursuits and willful desire to push his limits. He continues to find his life's purpose, and I can assure you, it's not one that he could have planned. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We are so grateful to each one of you for supporting the show, from using the Amazon banner ad to becoming a supporter on Patreon. This month, we're giving away three pairs of 2 times you compression run socks to three randomly chosen tribe members who leave a review on Apple Podcast. So... If you enjoy this show, please share your words with the world. It greatly supports the Yogi Triathlete podcast and it gets you in the running to win. We also have new merch on our shop page, yogitriathlete.com forward slash shop. Awaken ready tees, tanks, and a long sleeve for those who are committed to no longer sleeping through life. And speaking of sleeping through life, our newest snooze is for sissies is not only totally rocking, but it's a necessary reminder for all of us with athletic goals. You know what I'm talking about? That gap between when the alarm goes off and the decision to be up, or let's just stay with the theme here, be a sissy. I've been a sissy many a day, but then I think about some of our unbelievable guests like Jeremy and I get my butt out of bed. We were connected with Jeremy through Marianne Leekes, our epic podcast guest from last month. Jeremy is a Two Times U ambassador with us, and we are so grateful for this chance to connect with him. And now to share the quintessential anti-sissy that is Jeremy McGee. Perfect. All right. Cool. Welcome to the studio where we do the nerve center of the podcasting, our elaborate studio here in Carlsbad. And you're a SoCal native, aren't you?
0: I am, born and raised.
1: Were you, you're in Cardiff now, right? So just yes. a few towns south of us. And tell us about growing up here in SoCal. Like, I mean, we're from Rhode Island, right? We're from New England, and I see... As I'm out for my morning runs and stuff like that, I see like kids before school hitting the surf, after school hitting the surf, they're on the volleyball courts, they're out there, they're always being active. And you can do that year round, which is a huge reason why we live here, because we wanted to be able to train year round. So tell us a little bit about what it was like for you, Jeremy, growing up in this this area.
0: Well, I grew up a little bit inland, so it wasn't exactly on the beach. And my family was not active at all. So I, we my little brother and I basically we just like ran through the canyons in the Mira Mesa ranch Penasquitas, you know del Mar Mesa area, Los Penasquitas Canyon.
1: yeah, I just ran there we for just, the first yeah. time the other day.
0: We grew up exploring that canyon, meeting illegal aliens out there. Um, we swore there's a little waterfall out there. we swore we discovered it because we stumbled upon it one day, and, <laughs> and you know I'm thinking about it, and that waterfall is a solid. 15 miles from our house and we're, we'd go far. So yeah, we're always, everything we did was always outdoors, lots of skateboarding, lots of riding makeshift skateboard ramps in people's backyards, tromping through the canyons, that kind of stuff.
1: So you're always kind of like a discoverer, like an adventurer. Yeah. Do you remember the first thing, and we're going to get into your story even deeper, which is going to show this more and more, but do you remember like the first time that you saw or envisioned or felt something that you wanted to do that was quote unquote unattainable?
0: Wow. Good question. I mean, really the, the first thing that comes into mind is, is bloody cool in this mountain just outside of mammoth and uh, just sitting there looking at it every day, wanting to be up there for years, actually for several years looking at this mountain.
1: Did you live there?
0: Yes, I did actually. I lived in Mammoth for 7 years.
1: And so you would look at that every day and your friends were going up it.
0: Mm-hmm. All right,
1: well let's back up the track well, let's back up the track just a okay. little bit. So cuz that's going to be I think the, um, the meat of our story is this unbelievable feat that you've done and we watched your TED talk about it and it was so your TED, the way that you describe it in your TED talk and I'm just going to leave the listeners wanting a little bit more here is just so unbelievable when you're talking about that like the pull-ups mm-hmm. and how you got up there. Okay. So we're going to back up the truck a little bit. You grew up super active and went to school around here. Did you go to college around here?
0: I did. I went to Point Loma Nazarene University.
1: Where's that? Point Loma. (laughs) Yes, down in San Diego,
0: down in Point Loma. um, It's a Christian school. It was was like living in a big house on the beach because it's right on the water. I did not have to lift my head from my pillow to see the surf. Uh, so it's like living in this big house on the on the ocean with all your best friends, um, all you can eat buffet three times a day. <laughs> wow. I think it, it was a four to one girl to guy ratio. Um, <laughs> it was awesome. it was a good time. <laughs> like anything was bad there.
1: <laughs> Is that where you got into surfing?
0: I started surfing when I was young, about ten years old. I remember my brother and I. Both had skateboards, and I can't remember which one of us it was. I maybe it was me. Traded, I think I traded my skateboard for a surfboard. And so that we had one surfboard and one skateboard that we just sh- we would share. And we started riding our bikes down to the beaches about eight miles or so to the ocean. And we just started surfing.
1: With your surfboards. Yeah. So you do like a 16-mile ride, mm-hmm. surfing. I love it. Skateboard
0: yeah, ride. and I, I remember. We knew which exit our, our, our mom was a single mom, and we knew which exit she had to take on her way home from work. And so we'd ride our bikes to the freeway exit and <laughs> hang out with our surfboard on the side of the highway. You know, there's no, this is the 80s, so there's no cell phones or anything.
1: Just <laughs> waiting for her to get up.
0: And we'd make, she had this little red hatchback Toyota. She'd pull over on the side of the basically the off ramp super busy area, and have to, we'd have to pack our bikes and surfboard and skateboard all in this little car. It was pretty <laughs> hilarious.
1: <laughs> Did you have more siblings or just the one?
0: Uh, we have an older sister. And,
1: and is she still around here too?
0: She lives in Colorado, actually. She's in the Glenwood Springs area.
1: Nice. And uh, is your brother around here?
0: He lives in New Mexico now. Okay. Yeah.
1: You guys were pretty good buddies growing up.
0: Yeah. We're only 14 months apart.
1: So oh, yeah, we're, Irish we're, twins.
2: Yep. we're really close. growing Yeah. Up. Mm-hmm. So the surfing, did, did you pick, is it something you, uh, you took lessons for or is it, it seems like you would just, you guys would just dive in the water. and. No way, up man. When you're
0: 10 years old, you don't need a lesson for anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You just dove right in. Dove right in. No wetsuit. No nothing. I think I remember the first my first
2: wave I ever caught actually had a cast on my arm and a plastic <laughs> bag over it. <laughs> so pretty pretty much nothing would would bar you from pursuing what you wanted to pursue at a young age.
0: I I guess I don't know. When you're a kid, you don't really know any better, you know. Yeah, I
1: know, it's but kinda... there's I think I think there's a lot of kids that have got they've got some they've got some fear of things, and I mean I th- I think because you've lived it, it's. It might be hard to kind of pull back, but when I look at you and I, I mean, I used to do some crazy stuff as a kid and as an adult, but I had, I would feel barriers and limits of what I was capable of doing. And it seems like for you, you would just kind of like, there was no hesitation. You would just, you would go.
0: I don't remember ever hesitating. So
2: maybe.
1: You were built for this. (laughs) So take us through through your story as you grew up, you you started getting into motorcycles and you kind of had your eye on getting a motorcycle and tell us a little bit about, tell us that story.
0: Well, at the time I was getting into motorcycles, I was honestly living the dream. I feel like I was lifeguarding in San Diego during the summer and teaching snowboarding in Tahoe in the winters and starting to make a, a little money in my snowboarding career.
1: How old are you at this point?
0: Early 20s. Just graduated from college. I was waiting tables, lifeguarding, teaching snowboarding.
1: Sounds amazing. It was amazing.
0: I I mean, living in San Diego, I still would get s- about 60 to 70 days snowboarding in. In the seasons that I did not s- live in Tahoe at that time. And it, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> Surfing every day. And if there's no waves, go to, going to the skate park yeah it was it was definitely a good life and i had this really cool motorcycle this uh, it was an 87 ninja and <laughs> i loved riding that thing around it was super fun and then i remember in 2001 suzuki came out with their redesigned GSXR and it was on the cover of a motorcycle magazine or something and for some reason this motorcycle just started calling to me and i, I put it up on my wall and one day, I just I just went and got it. One day,
1: what was it about the motorcycle that you that you liked so much? Did you like the speed? Did you like the?
0: Well, I have a friend from college who is actually a Blue Angel pilot, mm-hmm. and how he explains it's pretty cool. He says that riding a a crotch rocket is more exciting than flying an F eighteen.
1: It's pretty cool, and I've been on. I've never driven one, but I've certainly been on the back of one many times, a couple of times going really, really fast, like in college, like, let's see how fast we can get this thing. Just crazy, uh, angels all around me. And then another time was, I remember coming wow. down the Canyon in Boulder, just coming down the Canyon with my sister's boyfriend, who's just a really skilled rider and just leaning in with him and being like a part of that motion and that creation of this rhythm was so amazing. And you just, for me, it was like, there was, there was no fear. I could just feel like the connection of me and my friend and the bike and all of us moving as one. And there was like this unbelievable freedom to it.
0: Yeah. I caught the bug too. It was, yeah, it's really thrilling. And when you're 22 years old, whenever 23 years old, it's really cool. You know, things that were important to me then aren't so important anymore of, you know, having recognition and, and being cool. Yeah. You know, that was a big part of it too. Oh, totally. Yeah. To be honest.
1: It's so nice to get wisdom, isn't it? I wouldn't say I have
0: wisdom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Well, I think that's a little bit of wisdom. You know,
1: those things that we used to think were important. I call it wisdom. You've got this motorcycle and you finally bring it into your life and and then did you have buddies that you were riding with yeah, and stuff like that? A whole that?
0: crew. I was in a, a motorcycle gang. Nice. <laughs> did you have a name? Jeremy? No. <laughs> <laughs> no
1: the gang of a name.
0: Oh, I God, so long ago. Oh, like a bike. Well, name. we were called the Dirty Dogs. Nice. The Dirty Dogs. That sounds like a that sounds yeah, like a and good Yeah. all gang. these guys were actually really gnarly and I, you know, I I was not like them. I just <laughs> liked riding in a big pack <laughs> though. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I love it. So can you bring us to the day where your life shifted?
0: Yeah. Um, we, by we, I mean my buddy Chad and I, we were at the Charger game that day. And then afterwards, we we're hanging out at my apartment in Point Loma. And we decided to go get him a cell phone. Just a simple errand. We're going to go to the Sprint store and get him a new cell phone. And so we jumped on our bikes. It was basically an excuse to ride our bikes. Mm-hmm. Um, we're on our way to the store. And I, gosh, maybe three blocks from my apartment, I totally fall into that statistic. was it, six blocks? Or most accidents happen within yeah, six within blocks Yeah, within like two miles on, of your home. Something like that, yeah. yeah. I fall right into that statistic. And I was approaching... A dr- like a driveway entry into a little like 7-Eleven strip mall and I was checking there's an RV parked on the side of the road so I was kind of peering around the RV to make sure someone was not coming out another car was coming out of that driveway um, so I was, you know being safe in my mind when I was normally showboating and doing 90 mile per hour wheelies I was usually that guy and I was totally being safe, checking this driveway, and when I looked up, there was a car in front of me. Smash right, and didn't have time to smash right into it.
1: And it doesn't even sound like you were going that fast.
0: No, but I was accelerating.
1: Mm. So and not,
0: and not accelerating accelerating quickly, but accelerating nonetheless.
1: What do you remember about it?
0: I remember everything. Um, I remember my face being smashed up against the side of the car. And I was laying in the street, and I couldn't see. And I later learned that my helmet was twisted sideways. That's why I couldn't see. And I couldn't get up. I kept thinking, I can't can't get up. I can't feel my legs. And... What happened next? What were my thoughts? Well, I was assessing my injuries as a medic, as a first responder, as a lifeguard. I was assessing my own injuries. So it was kind of mechanical thought process. And I thought, okay, I, I can't feel my legs. I, I must have broken my back, and it really hurt to breathe. Every breath was really painful. so, so I thought, okay, i've I've broken some ribs. It turned out I broke almost all of them. Which was that was probably the most painful part of the whole thing, and um, and then I started, I tasted blood in my mouth, so I was like, okay, broken ribs have punctured my lungs. This is pre- this is pretty serious, you know, as far as um, you know, life threatening wise. And then what I realized was the gnarly part: um, my face and my hands started getting cold really, really fast, and that's where I was like, okay, I'm I'm bleeding internally or where I can't can no longer feel and I'm losing I'm losing blood right now and I started to get really really tired and you know it was a warm sunday afternoon and the pavement it just felt really really warm and comfortable and I just wanted to sink into it and I felt at peace really I wasn't panicking I felt fine I was completely comfortable with just going to sleep right there my the thought I was having I thought about my mom and about my friends. I just want to let them know that I was okay. I was fine. And they wouldn't need to worry about me. That was kind of my, the thoughts going through my head. then all of a sudden, uh, there's this man's voice. He had maybe a Southern accent or something. And he said, hold on, man. Paramedics are right here. And they were. There was a group of paramedics across the street at a taco shop having lunch. I mean, how long does it take you to throw your food down and run across the street of just a few seconds. And so that little moment I had there in the street, although it seemed like a long time was really, really short, only in a matter of seconds. And they're on me. Um, one of them, I guess, went and grabbed the ambulance. They, they took my helmet off and then I could see and they had me backboarded and, and everything and shoved me in the ambulance. Um, they cut my brand new motorcycle jacket off me. I was super bummed about that. <laughs> I tried to get him to stop. He's like, "Sorry, man, I have to." And the scissors—you know—the scissors are so sharp they don't even cut. Mm-hmm. They just, whoosh, it's basically like a razor blade right through my thick leather jacket. It was pretty insane. And that, so that was gone. And then um, in the ambulance, the the medic. Um, asked me if he could give me something to get me ready, for the, ready for surgery. I was going to go right into surgery. And I said, okay, he's like, okay, I need you to sign this. And my hand was strapped down. So he kind of moved this clipboard with this document down to my strapped hand. And I just held the pen and just like scribbled on it. And I, I remember apologizing to him like, sorry, it's not much of a signature. He's like, it's okay. And then he had a syringe ready, stuck it in me. And next thing I know, I woke up in an MRI tube. Yeah.
1: Post-surgery? Post-surgery.
0: Post-surgery. Yeah, he knocked me out right there in the ambulance getting me ready for surgery. Wow. Yeah. And um when I woke up, a voice came over the a speaker in the in the MRI tube. And I'm assuming it was either the technician or doctor or somebody. And they said, Before, you know, we ask you any questions or or tell you anything like just know that you're you're lucky to be alive you you almost weren't if those paramedics weren't there you would not be here so know that first I was like okay all right I'm just lucky to be alive right now so okay now give it to me and they asked me if I could move my toes or feel anything and of course you know, the answer is no 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 and then they started going down the list of injuries with me
1: of what they had assessed
0: Of what they found yeah, yeah. first I had um a laceration in my lower body that was, that was losing a lot of blood. And so surgery was to repair, repair that. Um, they said something about a lacerated spleen that was going to heal said something about, um, I I think, uh, nine or 10 broken ribs or something like that. Yeah. And uh broken hip. And then of course the, the T 10, 11 and 12, vertebrae
1: fracture. So that's your thoracic spine. And mm-hmm. with an injury like that, it's when we say like a C7 or a T10, it's basically your 10th thoracic vertebrae down.
0: Yep. So it goes your cervical spine, which is your neck. Basically there's eight of those vertebrae. And then your thoracic vertebrae is your back. And there are 12 of those vertebrae. And as they get lower, they're bigger and bigger vertebrae. I mean, these are pretty big bones. And so the lower you go, like, the more, the bigger the space between, like, your injury level are. If you break a, your, your T10 versus, like, a T11, there's a big difference because the vertebrae are so big.
1: Interesting, yeah. because uh-huh. what's happening is the central, the spinal cord is going down the center of all these, just to help people understand the anatomy. Like, the central spinal cord is going down the center of all the vertebrae, and then there's little nerves coming out of each vertebrae. I don't know if it's between, I can't really remember, but between that. And those are innervating different muscles and parts of your body.
0: Organs, everything, yeah. And the thing is, is, you know, my vertebrae were shifted. Only 50% of my spinal cord was compromised, it was basically pinched. And when they put me back together, they put two screws through my spinal cord. I had surgery a few days after to repair, put my spine back in place. And a couple screws went right through the the spinal cord.
1: Was that on purpose?
0: No. No, it was a mistake. So who knows if I would have had a a chance to, you know, recover or not. It's kind of crazy.
1: Have you ever gone there?
0: Thought about recovering?
1: Yeah, like have you ever gone there? Um, I mean, I agree with you, like who, who knows and, you know, the way that it, it, shakes down really like the way that life shakes down is the way that it shakes down and what is 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 but have you ever gone down that road in a in a negative sense like
0: absolutely i think um to not go down that road is insanity you know you you have have to explore that there's loss that needs to be expressed and when you lock it up that's and just deny what you're actually feeling I, i feel like that's insanity You know, you don't want to go down that road too far. I don't want my decisions and actions to be based on that. Um, But I think it's important to be honest with how how we're feeling. And yeah, in the beginning, oh, super angry. I mean, we're talking, you know, dark nights alone in the hospital. It was definitely rough, you know? And I still have, I mean, what is it? That was in 2001. We're now 2018. Mm -hmm. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) And...
0: You know, so we're 17 years later. I'm 16 and a half years later. I, I still have my days. And I even go through phases, you know, where it's maybe several weeks or a couple months long where, you know, I'm dealing with stuff. I'm, I always say I'm a runner. I was really into running. and I, I really miss running a lot, you know. And when I feel that, I, I, I don't want to ignore it.
1: No. And I don't, and I think that to ignore it, to pretend it's not there, to try and cover it up is, I love the way you described it, it's insanity, because it's its not sustainable, it's not a healing uh, way of working through something, because you're not even working through it. We hear a lot about like, mind over matter, but I don't think that that's, I think that's such a, a f- a misleading thing for anyone to buy into. I think it's like mind in matter and we had a, a guest on our show that really talked about that and I love that. Like mind in matter. Shane Eversfield who's an ultra endurance athlete and he talks a lot about like this training of the neural pathways, you know, changing our brain and everything needs to be fully expressed. Like we need to fully express, we, even if it's the deepest darkest night, like if it's our shadow self just pinning us down. Like to be fully in that and to fully feel that and sometimes that means that you know all you've got is the breath you're in or maybe all you've got is just a day in bed because you just can't function in the world but we all have them and i think to to gloss over or, or to say that there's any other way to deal with them than to go fully in them is such a disservice
0: absolutely well the most powerful jedi is yoda right yeah, <laughs> he's just a little guy. He, it's because he understands the dark side
1: mm-hmm.
0: and is not temp is you know everyone's tempted by it. They're all Jedi are tempted by the dark side, but mm-hmm. he understands it and um, can control it. Yeah, yeah. That's why he's the most powerful Jedi.
1: So, how do you, well, even now, sixteen years later, and you find yourself with that shadow self just wanting to move in? Because I man, I know how that feels. Like in in different circumstances, like different, the recipe might be different if I was to describe what mine feels like and Mm -hmm. why it feels like, why it's coming up in yours. Like maybe those words would be different, but I, I know what it feels like to be so just pinned down Mm -hmm. in that darkness. And so for you, what, what is your tool to like navigate that
0: it depends if it's cloudy or not. <laughs> Seriously.
2: <laughs> when the sun's out,
0: it's a lot easier. <laughs> Seriously. Um, no, man. And every, every day is so different. Everybody, every day is so different. My, my girlfriend and I debate a lot about this. Um, um, you know, joy, hope, and love are the most powerful motivators. Of course. There's no argument with mm-hmm. that. Um, we've all read Born to Run, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about the tarumara and their secret is joy, you know, they're running and giggling, you know, and so they're able to do these like ultra runs because they're just full of joy. Um, so that said, um, anger and fear and those types of emotions are also very powerful motivators, no comparison, but can be harnessed in a positive way, you know? And so I, I tend to be, um, kind of a, a self destroyer kind of in a, a way. Like if I can put myself through pain, it, it helps me. And when I just, in my workouts, in my training, in my endeavors, if I can bring myself to this point where I'm just pushing through pain, uh, it helps me get that out. I, I don't know. It sounds weird. I bet. No, it's, it's weird.
1: not. And actually there's like in the, in the meditative world. So I, I practice meditation and I, I work with people and teaching them meditation. And I always say that, you know, when, when we're in that dark night of the soul, like where there's, there's three things that, that can really help. And it could be just a negative thought that's hassling you, or it could be like a really dark, like, I don't want to be here anymore kind of feeling. And there's three things that will really help you process that. One is move your body.
0: 100%.
1: Move your body, go out, move your body, whether that's going for a walk or it's going for a 25 mile ride or it's, you know, surfing in a school of sharks, like whatever it is, move your body, whatever you need. And the other thing is aid another person. So somewhere go and assist another person. Yeah. Be in service. So that could be buying their smoothie at the smoothie shop or helping someone cross the street or whatever it is. And then the third thing is go to sleep, just rest.
0: It's true because it's,
1: we get a lot of processing of things when we dream. Mm-hmm. Um, we're tapping into our subconscious, and we we do actually a lot of processing in the sleep. So, yeah, moving the body, and I think that this is such a perfect segue into the bloody couloir. Yeah, uh, yeah, I want to get into that because the extremity. I think it's a perfect balance of the extremity of what you've experienced and the extremity of of what you're achieving. Is like there's a beautiful balance there between the two.
0: Yeah, I love the way you said that. I mean, my greatest coping mechanism is being active. You know, the, the major emotional issue that I deal with on a, on a given day is feeling claustrophobic, feeling stuck, you know? And the way that I cope with that is moving in space, in nature. Um, it doesn't change anything, but helps me feel better. You know, when I'm exploring and pushing myself Absolutely. And that is such yeah. a
1: beautiful thing about our bodies is that it literally will give us chemical releases and feedback. It will give us reward for movement.
2: Mm-hmm. It's so
1: amazing. So let's talk about the bloody that you looked at for yes. seven years. It taunted you. <laughs> yes. what, tell me about the first time you saw it. When did it call to you?
0: Well, I was actually, I had just gotten <clears throat> my second mountain bike. Uh, Adaptive mountain bike. My first bike was completely rigid. It had uh, a drive wheel. You could pedal it, but there was no suspension. And back then, um, it was either or. It was either you had a drive system and no suspension, or you had full crazy suspension and no drive system. like Gravity only downhill bike.
2: Mm.
0: And I had just sold my rigid bike with a drive wheel and gotten a full suspension four wheel. Cra- it looked like a little trophy truck. Almost this crazy downhill bike. Like That's a, a mi-
1: sweet, soft ride. <laughs> yeah. Right
0: mini doom buggy. I mean, we're talking like 18 <laughs> inches of travel, each wheel, full <laughs> independent suspension, crazy. And I just gotten this bike and, um, I was dating this girl, dating this girl at the time and I would make her, um, shuttle me. She, I would I'd drive up, you know, mountain road or whatever and bomb down on my bike and make her drive down.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She was being in service. Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) And so there's this one road that I had been been eyeballing for a while, this crazy switchback road um, just off the highway outside of Mammoth. And I was telling a good friend of mine that I wanted to go do this road. He was like, no way, if you're going to go do that, let's camp in the me- this meadow over there and I'm going to hike and ski this really cool peak right over there. I was like, okay, cool. Let's go. Let's go on this adventure. So we went out there and we camped and I did the road and he went and he and his girlfriend, now wife, they just had their first baby, um, which they owe me because I got them together. Isn't that how it works? Yes. If you get your friends yeah, together, they true. owe you their firstborn. What are, yeah. <laughs> Do, you want them? Do you want to make a, an official Jeremy. plea
1: here to give the child up?
0: <laughs> 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 so that's an ongoing joke with us. But anyway, <laughs> so they go hike and ski this thing. We, they come back down and we camp for the night again. And they're, they've shown me their photos telling me about their day and I hear about bloody cool water for the first time. And they talk about this peanut butter jelly sandwich Mm. picnic that they had on the top together soaking in the view before they skied down it. And I thought, I want to do that. I want to be there with them. Like I felt totally left behind I felt like if I was not in a chair, I would be with them. Um, and so I started thinking about this mountain and trying to figure it out. And it's not an easy mountain to get to. It's not an easy trail and ascent um,
1: it's, to get to. And we just watched your movie, <clears throat> Drop In, that I highly recommend everybody watch. And the truck in is insane. And we can talk a little bit more about that in detail about when you actually went and did it. But the truck in is like, it's no joke.
0: It's no joke. Uh, we There's about a mile. Well, we could we, we had to off-road down part of that road that I downhilled. Um, and I mean, we're just thrashing our trucks. I, there's big boulders and it's... You should have, should have a, a lifted vehicle or, or you know a dune buggy or something or for this road. It's, it's pretty gnarly. So we get out there, and we have about a mile to get to the base of the couloir. And, but this mile is snow, scree, boulder fields that we have to get through. They, my friends basically have to carry me over. And then we got this toboggan that has a, a wheel that snapped on the bottom of it. But for parts of it, that was too dangerous because it's just moving, sliding rock, and it's steep. So then they had to fireman carry me over moving scree fields. Yeah, it was it was mm. pretty it was it's pretty gnarly. Right. Yeah, it's
1: crazy. So you get this, you get this inspiration. I mean, it's it's such a perfect equation because here you are going, yeah, this will be cool. I'll mountain bike and you guys ski, and then you're like. The the word that's coming up for me is like this idea of feeling stuck. Like you, Mm -hmm. like in that moment, you were like, I can't do what they just did. That makes me feel stuck. Would you say that that was?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Totally felt left behind, stuck, limited. Um, blocked. Yeah. And so I wouldn't call it inspiration. I would call it (laughs) obsession.
1: There you go. Here we go with like a little bit of like, I'm pissed and I'm going to do this, right? Here we go with the motivation. I definitely
0: was pissed and I, I definitely needed to do something about it.
1: So tell us about like what, how did you get this crew of amazing people together? And was it more than just that, the core crew that we see you in the movie with?
0: Mostly, the the people that are in the movie are the people that are part of it. Um, the The folks that you don't see are the you know the the post production people for the actual movie of making the film that puts tons of work into it. Um, yeah. Alan Jacoby is one person that you don't see. He's the the guy that made the film basically. Um,
1: and there's and, some pretty close up, like good footage of you climbing.
0: Yeah when you watch the film you see the guys that made it are really talented yeah and the guys behind the camera are really talented too and to get that amount of footage um to capture it the way they captured it it seems it impossible to me. I, I wouldn't be able to, to do that. And it's an film. hour
1: That's movie. So I'm assuming there was way more footage than an hour. So much footage. <laughs> <laughs> Making
0: a movie is a lot of work and yeah. going through all the raw footage is a lot of work.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So what's the first step?
0: Well, getting the crew together, um, as you said, and, and it was, it seemed seemingly random. I had a a guy, one of my best friends, he's a really good climber in Mammoth, Jeff Fox. He was going to be the guy to take me up Bloody, and he had a last-minute trip that he had he had to go on. I wouldn't let him say no to this trip. is a really good opportunity for him. So he, since he was not going to be there, he grabbed a couple other local climber guys and put me in contact with them. Now, the way I got in t- contact with Jeff, he wasn't my best friend at the time, he is now, but then I I met him because I just put a, a flyer up in the ski patrol room in Mammoth.
1: What and, the flyer said? he <laughs> What the hell did the flyer say?
0: Well, well, it said, hey, I'm in a wheelchair and I want to climb this mountain. <laughs> you, who wants to help me? <laughs> I love it. That's what it said. It said, that's exactly what it said. And I had little pull-off tabs with my number. <laughs> like, oh,
1: <yeah. laughs> So cool.
0: And he called me. He was like, hell yeah. He answered my ad. And um and and even though he wasn't the guy that did it, he is the guy that connected me with the guys that took me up there. Charlie Barrett and Matt Waugh are the two local really good local climber guys that stepped up and we became good friends. You know, uh, Mammoth Mountain was very supportive through, through everything, uh, especially through the training, they, um, put me up for free in employee housing, um, which happens to be wheelchair accessible, which is a big deal, especially in a small mountain town where everyone has stairs and tiny bathrooms and everything, you know? So that was a big deal. Um, I could, you know, live comfortably while training come, you know, cause rest was a big part of all this. And every day we just, we had a spot on the mountain that they, that the mountain closed off for us that we could, we trained on to figure out the system.
2: Go ahead. I <clears throat> just like surfing, <laughs> you were like, how am I going to figure this out? But you just, okay. there's no training plan nope. to, to, cl- to climb this mountain. There's nothing you can download it online or buy or anything like that. You had to come out and figure this out for yourself. Yeah. This had never been done
0: before. We called experts and no one's done it. No one has ever done anything like this before.
2: So the first thing you do, you go to find a spot in the mountain. What's the system look like? What, like, how did that come? I about?
0: Have, we have, I have some photos, <laughs> and it's a total shit show. I mean,
2: we're, <laughs> there's gear everywhere.
0: One of the photos, you can see uh, one guy's like duct taping my legs together. So it's all
2: trial and error. <laughs> my hat point, sideways. Yeah. My hair's
0: in my face. There's <laughs> stuff everywhere, and we're, we're a total mess. Um, experiment experimenting with different body positions, different rig setups, trying to figure out what was most efficient. Um, you know, in the first couple of days, there was hardly any climbing or anything happening at all. I mean, we're just talking a couple inches, a few feet, you know, and then we'd think of what needed to change, what we needed to do or gear we needed to get. Or what we needed to rig up, and we, at night, go work on whatever it was. Go to this hardware store and build whatever we needed to build. And then come back the next day and implement our ideas, whatever we worked on. And then every day, it was kind of like small steps every day. You know, uh, becoming more and more and more efficient.
1: And then in the movie, you talk about, is, it, is his name Mike Wellman?
0: Mark Wellman, Mark yes. Wellman, Ugh. yes.
1: Mark Wellman, I apologize. He's a super incredible badass. yes. And um, you caught, Did you bring him in on some to get some of his input on how to create this mm-hmm. whatever it was mechanism of, mm-hmm. of you getting you up?
0: Basically, what what Mark gave us is we kind of copied some of his um, climbing rig ideas, um, basically how to make a pull up bar on a Jumar and things like that.
1: And for people who don't know Mark Wellman. like
0: he is a, a paraplegic climber and is we call him the father of adaptive climbing he was kind of the first guy that did it he's done all the big wall climbs in yosemite which you think about you know doing l cap and and climbs like that with just your arms
1: dude i think about doing like (laughs) pull-ups in the safety of my home I mean, so this guy's doing essentially pull-ups. His arms
0: are the size of my body. Yeah,
1: there's, like, one scene in the movie where you see his arms. I'm like, holy crap, that guy's massive. But the massive. pull-up system's working. Yes. And so that's ultimately what you use. Basically, we
0: got, you know, threaded steel bars and you and like threaded just, them into the Jumar.
1: And you, and you just, like, the most simple stuff. Like, you got... a bar and you got like, you got there was no high tech, like NASA scientists on this thing. Like you were, you ended up like with a child sled, a pull up bar. Mm-hmm. So yeah, tell us about the some final. Of the,
0: some <laughs> of the gear is pretty technical gear though. Um, for example, we wanted me to be able to just focus on one motion, just doing the pull up and not on having to do a pull up and then feed the rope through. So we had a piece of equipment called a mini traction where if the bottom of the rope is weighted, the rope is gonna feed through the mini traction. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a pretty technical <clears throat> piece of gear. Um, and I, I believe that uh, Mammoth Mountain Ski Patrol let us borrow that, because that's not a cheap thing, you know? So they're actually, yeah, we're in a plastic kid's sled and duct taping my feet together, but we do have did have some very technical gear involved.
2: And so it's a pull up motion. So we're watching it, we see you constantly like pulling up, pulling up. Did you do any off? training work so you weren't on the slide you were at home were you doing any pull-ups or strength work like separate from being just on the mountain
0: During training yeah. no okay. because climb training was all my body could do in a day yeah. um, but yes leading in the months probably close to a year or more leading up to training li- leading up to you know actually on the mountain climb training figuring out yeah I was in the gym constantly pull-ups yeah. lots of pull-ups
2: mm-hmm. swimming any pulling yep. with the paddles. Yeah. Yeah. Lots
0: of swimming, lots of pull ups, lots of weight training, lots of cardio, all of the above, everything. Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: And with everything, I'm assuming there were thoughts of like, how the hell am I going to do this?
0: Oh yeah. Oh, hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent.
1: How did uh. you get like when those showed up?
0: Well, you know, well, it's funny, you know, the, you know, the way some of my close friends talk about it, they're like, Oh yeah, Jeremy's got another idea. You know, I've always been kind of known as you know, and and truthfully been a dreamer, you know, and where I, I talk a lot, but doesn't things don't actually happen. So there was a lot of that going on, like, oh, Jeremy's got another idea, you know, and I was like, hell no, this is not going to be another one of those ideas that doesn't happen, you know. Um, and yeah, there's a there's a lot of that, you know, a lot of nightmares about actually skiing this thing, too. You know, yeah. i never skied anything like this, lots of nightmares. I mean, this mountain was haunting me in my dreams. You see in the film, there's days, there's training days where it, it was brutal. And I was, and I,
2: of course I thought like, how is this even going to be possible? So back to <clears throat> the sports mentality, like percentage of physical versus mental. What was it? What is the, what does that percentage look like to you? Man,
0: that is such a good question because my body actually completely shut down on the mountain during the expedition. I had run out of water. I was dehydrated. I have an old nerve injury in my left shoulder from playing football as a kid in high school, um, and my left arm was locking up. Um, and I basically was about to quit. I, I, in my, I didn't say it out loud, but in my mind, I, I was quitting. I was going to quit, and was felt like a total failure, you know, all this people, all this energy, all this work, all these sponsors, you know, everything that had gone into this. And I was the factor that was stopping this. I physically could not do it. Um, but another crew had hiked up the ridgeline up a different route. Um, they carried my sit ski and my skis and, you know, food and water and stuff. And they had reached the top. And we're yelling down the couloir at us and we, we could, we could hear their voices. And another friend showed up in a helicopter just to kind of like fly over and say, he rented a helicopter for an hour. Awesome. Um, and just to like, you know, just to see what's going on, you know? And um, it's, I don't know, the helicopter flying overhead. And then the other, the crew, my other friends yelling from up in the couloir. I don't know. It, some, my body was sh- shut down. Your body was sure. shut
2: down. But you, something in your mind is starting to like...
0: Something crash. Something switched. I got a, a, another boost of, of energy somehow from somewhere. I can't really explain it. Um, I don't know if it was adrenaline or if it was um, spiritual. Mm-hmm. I, I can't explain it. All, all I know is my experience. And my body was done. And I was able to finish it. So whatever How? that was, it is a real thing.
1: How far into it were you at that point? How far?
0: We are about, maybe we had a third of the cool wire left or maybe two thirds into the climb.
1: And it's like,
2: uh, if you've heard of David Goggins, the guy that push no. up record, uh, Marine pull guy, up, pull, pull up record. Up record. Um, he talks about it. He's like, once you're at that point, once you're at that point where you're about, you're 60% of your capability. So there's 40% left that's, Mm -hmm. that's triggered in your mind Mm -hmm. and I'm getting chills, but not many people get to that point. Like you're in this scenario, like, and how can you recall that ever happening? Oh, all the time, you know,
0: riding the stationary handbag at the gym this morning. I was like, (laughs) Oh God, I'm not gonna be able to finish this
1: workout. (laughs)
0: You know? (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) It's all relative to the moment. It's all relative to the moment. It totally is. So an experience like that and a moment like that and the physical, uh, you know, the physicality of that, the only thing you've got is the moment you're in. I mean, you cannot look further than that. Like it, yeah. the present moment, I would assume, shows up in a way where you realize like the, it, the only way you're going to make it up that last third is by doing it one moment at a time.
0: Yes, that is totally true. You hear me say in the movie, all I care about in life is just getting to Matt. And Matt was at the next anchor point, basically at the end of the rope length that we were currently on. And so that's all I could think about was just completing the rope length that we were on one pull up at a time, you know, and I'm not a I'm not a big guy. And doing pull ups for me is kind of hard. I have long arms. And so pull ups are hard for me. I can't do very many. I think I could do like seven or eight you know, at one time before I have to stop and rest. Um, that's a long lever. I, you know, you see guys with these little short arms. I just
1: like Yoda. <laughs> just just Yoda. pump out
0: bench presses. I can't do that, man. <laughs> yeah, like Yoda. <laughs> yeah,
1: Yoda's got really, no t- wonder. <laughs> he just, it's uses just a his, tiny little package, that one.
0: He just uses his mind to
1: but lift the bar. what like. I guess what I'm, get, I'm getting at from the like from the yogi standpoint, because this is the Yogi Triathlete Podcast, is that the present moment is the only moment, the only time that 100% of us is available. Mm -hmm. Like it's the only time all of our power is available. It's the only time all of our strength is available. It's the only time all of our will is available. Because if we're you know, we're living in the present moment, but our mind is in the future or it's, you know, on failure or it's on quitting or it's whatever. But when we get fully anchored into that and we feel that present moment, you're feeling, I know you're feeling every ounce of that next pull up. Like you're you're feeling that you're doing it. Like it's, and it's like being reinforced. And if you can do that one, then you can do another one. But it's mm-hmm. that present moment. If we're anywhere else, than fully a hundred percent in the present moment, which the extremity of that, physical feet, like forced you to be like, there's, there was no other way. I think when you got to that point where your body was done, the present moment just showed up because you had no other choice. And I believe that that's when you tapped into something deeper underneath all of the physical, like you tapped into that, that part of you, that's just completely limitless. And well, that's what took you up.
0: How do you eat an elephant?
1: Yeah. One bite at, one a, time. Bite at
0: a time. Right. <laughs> you know? And yeah. well, the truth <clears> of that, um, is, yeah, focusing on one pull-up at a time. And the more efficiently you do that pull-up, then the less work overall, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be more overall. So, yes, focusing in on this the micro-movements of that one pull-up is going to save effort overall and be much more efficient. Absolutely. And for me, the important part to remember is that our, our brains are very good at what they do. They're very good bargain shoppers, you know, and um, they're, our brains are really good liars when it comes to the amount of um, duress and uncomfortability and pain we're able to push through, where our brain's job is going to tell us, to protect us and tell us, don't do that, it's going to hurt, don't do that, it doesn't feel good. But in all reality, um, when we apply that to our physical endeavors, our relationships, our spiritual life, it's, it's unnecessary. And we're able to push through a lot more uncomfortability than our brain's going to let on.
1: Yeah. You had to like, you had to override that reptilian brain. You mm-hmm. had to override it. Yeah. 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 That, I never, I never thought of it that way. Okay. Tell, do you remember the last few that took you up?
0: I do. I remember it all clearly. Yeah. It was super painful. (laughs) I draw, you see in the film, I get to the top and I just drop a huge F bomb. Yes, you do. (laughs) It was, it was just all I could think. I was just, I was so destroyed. Um, my friend, uh, used the analogy. Um, he's like, man, that was like, Running a marathon and then going and surfing Mavericks on a huge day right afterwards, because <laughs> now I had to turn around and mm-hmm. ski this thing. Yeah, too, you know, yeah. and uh, and I was destroyed. And that moment on top um, was short because we were we had a turnaround time. We had a cutoff that if we got to that, we had to turn around because when it gets dark out there, it's it's not good. It gets icy. It gets cold. It gets windy and and, uh, and not having light it would have been really bad, really dangerous. there's tons of rock fall that was a real real huge danger. I saw a couple of rocks the size of microwaves fall off these huge rock walls is dangerous that's why we're all wearing helmets and everything. Mm-hmm. So we' were really only on top for a few minutes. Um, I had a lot going on emotionally and physically. I was exhausted, I was destroyed. super nervous it was all I could do to. Um, not let on to everybody else that I was nauseous because I was so scared. And, um, we signed the registry at the top, little, little book that sits in a little journal that sits rolled up in a canister and a rock at the top of, you know, top of the climb. And you're supposed to sign it and say, I've been here, sign that. Had the PB&J, <laughs> mushed and smashed and gooey. And, and it was t- it good? It tasted so good, man. <laughs> you know, when you're at that point, like, it, it, oh, man, it, it tasted so good. And um, and everything that it symbolized felt so good um, to be out there in the backcountry with my friends sitting on top of this mountain, seeing what's on the other side mm-hmm. for the first time. Because you don't get to see that from the base of the mountain. You don't get to see it until you're on top. Um, the wild... Ansel Adams, Wilderness, the Eastern Sierras.
1: You have to keep it together because you gotta get down this thing. And what's the the pitch? Let's give people a fifty idea. degree
0: average pitch. So nice. it's steeper that and steeper than that in some places and less steep in others. Um, but fifty degrees in the skiing world is is steep. It's it's pretty decent. When you're there on the mountain. Okay, so we're sitting on the head wall, which is above the steep part, which is about the steep part's about fifty degree pitch. When you're sitting, when we're sitting up on the head wall, you don't, you can't see the rest of the couloir because it's like the world just rolls over and ends. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I just that, like, I, I, I can feel that.
1: <laughs> I could now that i watched the thinking? movie, like I can, I'm like picturing because I saw you up there, you know, at the finish and one of your amazing friends packed in your sit ski. Yes. And a baby carrier. Yes. And it sounds like everybody was really helpful, except for the woman that sold you that baby carrier because she, <laughs> she overcharged you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny. We, I I think was, that. we bought it at a thrift store that yeah. baby at a baby carrier that we carried my Sitsky up the mountain with. We bought it at a thrift thrift store and it was expensive and the lady would not bargain with I
1: me. I just love your friend. He's like, nobody's even going to buy this. Like who's going to buy this thing? Nobody's going to put their baby in it. Like, he's like, guy in a
0: wheelchair is trying to climb a mountain and you're trying to bargain with him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so yeah, so you get your sit ski and now you got to like, Oh man, you need so much strength to get down.
0: Yeah. Well, we decided I was going to ski this thing on belay, which basically meant I was going to have a safety line That's attached pretty to pretty smart. And, um, Charlie would dish out, um, Charlie would be anchored to, to an anchor, would dish out enough rope for me to do one turn and then I'd stop and then he'd dish out enough rope for me to do another turn. And we're just going to do one turn at a time down this mountain.
1: Cause falling's not an option.
0: Falling was not an option, especially when you have a big metal thing attached to you. Um, and you've got 150 foot cliffs right below you.
2: Are you feeling the fatigue yeah. in your arm? Did you still have that fatigue in your arms, or was the rest up at the top enough to just kind of loosen them up? Oh, a little I, was, bit? I, was I was, I was dead. I was toast. <laughs>
0: but it was still able to, yeah. to ski. You know, Um my shoulder was was the thing that was bothering me—the nerve um, injury, the old nerve injury in the shoulder was the thing that was bothering me the most. And I honestly, I was not good enough to ski this thing. So I was really relieved that it, we're gonna, mm-hmm. we're going to have this, the safety line.
1: So it's. Not only are you doing it like in a sit after doing, how many pull-ups do you think you did?
0: I don't know. Thousands? It was, was 3,000 <laughs> vertical feet. So um, maybe 3,000?
1: That's insane.
0: <laughs> I don't know. And, yeah. and again, this wasn't all me either. I did have a ballet assist. The guys were helping me. Yeah. Um, it wasn't all me. i I obviously pushed myself as far as I could go, but I did have an assist too. So, right. Mm-hmm.
1: But I don't think anybody listening to this or knows you going to take any credit <laughs> away from, but I mean the people that you're with just amazing, amazing camaraderie and team that you had with you. So, so was there like, as you're, as you're going down, I mean, are you're just, you've just got to be so scared. But I, are you just, yeah, tell me about the like, tell well, us about that. Well, what was scary is
0: since I was, we're, since we were skiing this on belay and skiing it one turn at a time, I had to do that first turn every, every turn. I wasn't able to link my turns and carry my momentum from one turn into the next. I had to stop and start the next turn from a dead stop every time. And Which that is always
1: it. like, I think the scariest.
0: Yes. And especially from a sit ski, you know, it's, it's multiplied. Um, you know, you have to pro- initiating a turn is, you know, projecting into the fall line, basically throwing yourself downhill and then the ski will follow suit. Um, and from a sit ski, it's yeah, it's really scary. I'll we'll just say that.
1: So is there a point where they take you off the belay?
0: Yes. Um, we got past the no fall zone. We took the rope off and I was able to link up my turns and, and shred it up a little bit with my friends.
1: And what did that one word to describe that?
0: It was fun. Yeah, <laughs> exhilarating. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you know the ski conditions at the top and through the middle of the couloir were really good. Towards the bottom, it was really bad because uh, this was late in the year in a, in a bad snow season. So it, yeah, it was yeah, what time rough of year
1: out. of it? Because it doesn't look like a lot was, of snow. This was
0: in the summer. This was done in June. June of yeah, June second of twenty twelve is the date. And yeah, that whole middle part of the couloir that I just got to rip up with my friends, I felt like I was being me. I was skiing in the backcountry with my friends for the first time.
1: It's like the opposite of stuck.
0: Yeah, the opposite of stuck. Well said. Mm-hmm.
1: Beautiful. You've got an incredible TED talk. You've got this amazing, uh, awesome movie. How can people watch the movie? Can they watch it online? Do they buy the DVD? What's the best way for them to do it?
0: Yeah, we, we just do it by donation. If you go to dropinproject.com and make a donation of any amount, you know, basically cover the shipping or whatever, whatever you feel like. Some people give more. Some people you know, give just enough. You know, some people send us a couple bucks. That's totally fine. And we'll send a DVD.
1: Awesome. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I highly recommend it. And so what's next? Cause you are working on something huge with the MTB project.
0: Yes. Well, you probably seen photos of my crazy mountain bike.
1: Yes. Full suspension
0: bike, the green machine.
1: You actually got me on the coast to crest trail the other day. Cause <laughs> I watched a video and you were on it. I'm like, I need to go run that.
0: And you talk about obsession. I'm obsessed with the Costa Crest Trail, and we are working on getting it completed and um, making it accessible. There's, yeah, for there's sections riders. that
1: aren't like they're not linked up. Yeah, right? it's not
0: it's not done. But how cool would that be? You'd have a long distance trail in San Diego that goes from Del Mar Beach to Julian.
2: Hell yeah, Se-
0: mm-hmm. seventy five miles. I we got think Julian.
2: That's where. Oh, is that Our shop is out in Julian, isn't it? There's like a breakfast place or.
0: There, yeah, there's all kinds of yeah. cool little mom and pop restaurants yes, out yeah, there. Yeah. They're known for their apple pie. Okay.
2: Yeah. yeah, that's yes. <laughs> Yeah,
0: so I'm obsessed with this to Crest Trail. To be able to ride from Del Mar Beach to the mountains on one single trail is just a really exciting concept to me, um, especially in, what are we, the eighth or ninth largest city in the U.S., to have a trail like that uh, is really, really cool idea. So I've got this bike um, it can pretty much go anywhere. It's full suspension. It's got a drive system. I've, I do have a power assist on it, and that just you know, takes me further and faster than I would be just cranking with my arms, um, able to keep up with my friends and go some pretty good distance with it. and It can go a lot of places, um, but it can't go everywhere, and I've run into some problems out there on the trails And um, I even had to get airlifted out of Los Penasquitas Canyon one time. I was so stuck. I mean, imagine how stuck you have to be to call 911. Yeah. (laughs) I was upside down in a cactus full of black widows with a broken chain. (laughs) It was bad. It was bad.
1: <laughs> I think this is probably worthy of calling 911.
0: <laughs> and that was after about two hours of like hauling my bike through the super thick shrubbery because everything was overgrown after all the rains we had last year, mm-hmm. you know? Everything was way overgrown. And this, two hours of battling through the bushes, you know, imagine like not being able to use your legs and like dragging a big old. 50 pound, huge bike through the bushes. <laughs>
1: yeah. You've got a great video on your site, yeah. problem solving where you like come to like, there's crossing yeah. and there's just a tree down and it's all, it's just you figuring out how to get through it. But yep. um, now I see the the bigger picture is that you want to remove these things so pe- everybody can get on the trail.
0: Exactly. So I've run into these problems in my trail travels. I don't know if I can do a trail or not. Um, you know, I'll stop at bike shops and coffee shops and ask people, Hey, where can I ride around here? And, a lot of people don't know or, you know, the answer is stick to the fire road, which who wants to just ride the fire roads? I want to ride the trails. You hell know? Yeah. Yeah. That's the fun part. Um, so I called MTB project, which is, um, one of the largest trail information apps that um, mountain bikers use and asked them if they are interested in documenting accessibility for adaptive riders on their website and app. And they said, hell yes, they're all in. And they're they're owned by REI, so they're big. And so now I get to go ride everywhere and document my experience on the trail, MTB Project. The the trails that I document will be featured on MTB Project on the specific specific page for that trail um, so that adaptive riders can use the app like anybody else. Um, They can have it on their phone and know what they're getting into. Yeah, it's really exciting. And we're calling it the unpavement because uh, living life in a wheelchair, you kind of relegated to life on the pavement. And we want to unpave people's lives um, and get them out on the trail. Trail information is one part of the project. The other is getting people these really cool bikes too, um, so they can get out there because you know, they're not cheap. They're hard to get, but they're really cool things. Um, like I was telling you earlier, I'm, I'm a, I'm a runner at heart. And if I were not in a chair, I'd just be running through the jungle in my trunks, no shoes, with just a knife on my hip, you know? And, uh, this, this bike is how I do that is how I get out on the trail, you know, running on the trail basically
2: and getting people out there doing that. That's all part of the project. How can, how can people support the project? How can they get involved with the MTB? Um, Right now, uh, we are shopping for sponsors, um, basically
0: to cover expenses for the project. Um, And that's the biggest need that we have. Um, So if anybody listening um, is moved in any way or is interested, and when they check out the project, um, my website, com is the best place to find information and to get in contact with me.
1: And you said, before we turned the mics on, we were talking about this project and you said that it's your life's work.
0: It's turning into that. It sounds weird.
1: (laughs) It doesn't sound weird. And I guess my question is like, how does it make you, how does it make you feel to, to say something like that, to be living this and in lieu of everything that's happened in your life and those moments of the, the dark soul and all of that to have it taken you to a point where you feel like you found your life's work.
0: Well, having purpose as, as a human being is, is everything to like, to be able to voice your life's purpose in a, in a sentence, in a concise, clear sentence to me as human beings is, is a really important thing. That's what I try to remember when I don't want to get out of bed or when I'm not just, just not feeling like doing it. You know, when the, the struggle is old sometimes, you know, I just remember, Hey man, this is, this is your purpose. This is what you're here to do. Uh, to me, that's everything to, to have purpose and to have goals, um, things we're shooting for that we're striving for changes everything in, in my mindset day to day.
1: That's awesome. I think it's a perfect place to end. Jeremy, thank you so much. For coming up here and and seeing us, it's such a pleasure. And I want to thank Marianne from Two Times You to connect for connecting us because you're also an ambassador. Yeah, yeah you work Two with them. Times You yeah, yeah. is a great company. We love them. I
0: I don't know if I could do what I do without compression.
1: Seriously, mm-hmm. I'm highly compressed as well. <laughs> I freaking love it. It's I mean, just the my socks
0: alone for traveling. Just that alone is is everything but in compression what my arms go through in a mountain bike ride especially a day of downhilling I I can't do without it so yes thanks two times you and thanks Marianne
1: yeah she's awesome all right you're awesome thanks so much I'm so psyched to be connected with you All right, get connected with this guy. And if you feel so inclined, check out the many ways that you can support his endeavors. The Unpavement Project has the potential for tremendous impact in the world. And it is the long-term plan that through Unpavement, he will be able to subsidize the cost of the crazy insane bikes that are featured on Sport on USA. All of these links are in the show notes for this episode. So go there and check them out please share this podcast with your community or organizations and friends that you feel will benefit from Jeremy's story. The Yogi Triathlete tribe is growing every week. We are so grateful for your support and we thank you everyone who has purchased the Yogi Triathlete cookbook, high vibe recipes for the athlete appetite. We get so fired up when you guys post pics of the recipes you're creating. And we know that the Iron Maiden dish is hot right now in the Northeast. It is such a great meal to warm up all those healing spices and it's majorly power packed. Our team of athletes is also on the rise right now. We're in the midst of our January challenge, which thanks so much to our head coach BJ is to hold plank for the amount of minutes that equal the date. So yeah, there's 31 days in January, which means we're all going to be doing 31 minutes of plank that day which means we're going to be getting in some major planking this month. And in total, at the end of the month, if we do it every day, which we will because we are not snoozing, because we are not sissies, we are going to get over eight hours of planking in by the end of this month, which, like Jeremy's bikes, is totally insane. All right, so if you are into that kind of craziness and you've been wanting more guidance towards mastering your sport in life, then connect with us Also, we have a great extra with Jeremy that we'll be putting up on our Patreon page for our supporters this week. We've got another yoga class that's going to be going up there and sneak peeks of next week's guest. All right, that's it for now. So much love and high vibes from SoCal. And remember that you are a divine creation that includes every bit of greatness that you dream about. You know, those glimpses of life, the ones that make your stomach dance and your heart bounce. Well, just know That if we can see those in our minds, we can live those in our lives.